And the time to start, if you're not living your dream, is right now. Start setting goals and setting out where you set in the course of your life and setting it all up so that you get somewhere in the future. When all that comes together, something happens called fulfillment. If you are not experiencing awesomeness in every aspect of your life, it's just from an internal block or barrier disconnect that you've chosen to take on. Life is as easy or as hard as we want to make it. And I got my hands and my eyeballs and my heart around any information I could around holistic healing. And that led me down a never-ending rabbit hole of which I'm still spelunking into the depths of. I needed something like ayahuasca to really wake me up because I was very rigid and very stuck in my ways and very structured and controlling. And my first ayahuasca ceremony cracked my ego in a billion pieces. And uh, that's when I believe when you when we really follow our deepest truth, when we really follow our soul, when we really follow our true calling, the universe rises to support us moment to moment to moment. Welcome to the Holistic Health and Human Potential Podcast. I am your host, Ronnie Landis. I'm an international speaker, author of multiple books, an integrative nutritionist, a transformation and embodiment coach, and simply a man who has devoted most of my life to the study, application, and integration of human potential. And it is my biggest inspiration to bring you weekly episodes that will expand your mind, challenge your paradigm, deepen your heart, and help you to embody the greatest version of yourself as I believe you are meant to do something incredible with your life and this podcast exists simply to support you on that journey. Greetings, everyone. Welcome to episode 109 of the Holistic Health and Human Potential Show. I'm your host, Ronnie Landis. I am so excited for the interview that you are about to listen to with Dr. Brian Clement. Before we get into that, I want to share that I have a holistic health mastery nutrition certification program that is one of the most, if not the most, cutting edge and comprehensive natural nutrition and holistic lifestyle programs on the internet. You can find more information about that at holistichealthmastery.com. After you review the site and you feel really inspired to enroll into the program, you can receive 10% off the one-time payment, and the coupon code for that is Human Potential. Again, you can receive 10% off the one-time payment. Type in Human Potential at the checkout to receive that. Okay, so diving into today's episode with one of my great heroes in the health and living foods community, Dr. Brian Clement. Dr. Clement has been one of the core pioneers and leaders in the natural health and definitely the raw food field for over 45 years. He is the leader of the Hippocrates Institute in Florida, and this was originally created by Ann Wigmore, who is one of the legends in the natural health world. Wow. This interview was so far beyond what I expected it to be. And I have to say, this is the first time me and Dr. Brian Clement actually got to to meet each other virtually and got to speak with one another. 
And I have to say, I felt a kindred bond with him. And I hope that is clear in our conversation. There was just this magnetic connection between us that I I didn't expect. And I was so excited about the energy between us and the direction that we went. Really, to sum it up, I would say... The conversation really touches upon this notion that in order to achieve longevity, in order to experience our greatest level of vitality and health, we have to be doing what we love. We have to be activating our passion and we really just have to be in our mission. We have to be doing what we love in our life. And that is the pathway for activating our greatest healing qualities. And then all the food knowledge and all the lifestyle strategies, those complement our core passion and purpose for why we're alive. But we have to have a drive to live. We have to want to be here. And this interview was one of the greatest interviews I've ever had. I know I probably say that a lot, um, and and it's true, because I'm always changing. Every time I do an interview, I'm a different person, so it brings a different flair and flavor to the, the conversation, obviously. Um, so I'm, I'm just so excited. I'm so honored that you're all going to get to listen to this. I've listened to it a few times. I'm going to continue to listen to it because as I said, Dr. Clement is one of my heroes. I, I really love this man and the work that he's pioneered. He's a true leader and pioneer in the health world and is doing some of the most amazing work in the healing field. So I'm, I'm just excited. So with all that said, Get ready, buckle your seatbelts, enjoy this conversation between myself and Dr. Brian Clement. Dr. Brian Clement, welcome to the show. Nice to be here with you today. Yeah, this is a pleasure and an honor. I've been following your work for almost a decade now, and it's been a huge inspiration, a huge motivation in the work I do as an orator and just really in the stage of life that I'm in and the message that I have for the world. Your message has uh, imbued my message tremendously with a great deal of confidence, a great deal of positivity, and making a mark on the world. So I want to thank you for that, and thank you for your time, and I just want to dive right in with you. You're such a wealth of knowledge and there's a lot of area that I want to cover with you. So yeah, let's just dive in. Um, The very first thing I would love to begin our conversation with is by just having you share with us your background into the health field and what inspired you to begin your journey way back when with Ann Wigmore. Uh, Well, before Ann Wigmore, I was a typically overweight, angry uh, man and uh, recognized at a very young age, 19, 20 years old, that what I was doing wasn't working, but I didn't know any options. Uh, I wouldn't say the options weren't available then. They just were not as readily available. Mm. Where I grew up in the time period, I'm in my late 60s now, uh, men were just supposed to be great cursors and good spitters. And I was good at both of those. (laughs) And so... Uh, when I, I met my first uh, vegan friend, I thought something was mentally wrong with him. He didn't eat meat. He did yoga. He twisted his body into contorted. I said, this guy has, has, has to have a screw loose somehow. Uh, but thank God my girlfriend and I, he influenced greatly. And I uh, became a plant-based eater 
and the rest of the story unfolded. Mm-hmm. One summer, I was living in the state of Oregon, and where I lived in southern Oregon, it was very warm. Unlike when you think of Oregon, you think of rain and cool. Here it's from May until October, 100 degrees or 95 degrees every day. And I just inherently stopped eating cooked food and started to feel the ravages of health. You know, the first time I'm like, I felt really healthy when I gave up meat and really healthy when I gave up dairy. But now it was on raw food. And I remember reading this really odd book that I only read half of because I thought it was strange from this crazy woman uh, called Ann Wigmore. And so I went into my room and I finally uncovered that dusty book and I read the entire thing and that was it. And at the time I was actually ready to open a health center on the coast of Oregon with my wife and uh, she had never lived on the East Coast. So we came back, she picked Maine, which was not surprising since people in Maine and people in Oregon are very earthy, wonderful people, other than in in Portland where there seems to be problems. uh, They were down to earth people. And uh, I was fasting. I came off a 42-day fast, went down to visit Ann Wigmore, which was two hours from where I lived in in Oregon, in uh, Maine. And uh, they asked me to work. It was sort of like this intervention from God that I wasn't interested in. What I was no longer interested in was the dark, cold, disgusting winters of the Northeast. What I wasn't interested in is living where there was snow. I wasn't interested in living in a city. I wanted to live in the countryside. And uh, I never hear voices, nor do I have, have I sense, but I heard a voice that said, do this. And so my ambition, thank God, and my ego led me to say yes. Mm. And, uh, I never looked back. With them. They, they figured out I knew how to speak within a short time, and they started to have me do the introductions of Hippocrates. And very short order, they sent me to Europe, where I ended up spending three and a half years bringing the raw food message back. Uh, because in modern times, where the raw food message began was in Europe, mm-hmm. in Denmark, with Dr. Christine Nolfi, who actually had a center about a century ago that I had the privilege to direct for a year in 1977, uh, called Home the Garden. And she had reversed advanced cancer, breast cancer, with raw food. And it wasn't as elaborate, but it was certainly uh, interesting. She had little sprouts there, and she had raw food. And I read everything from her and directed that. Learned a lot about the European approach to it. Mm. And and, uh, came back, and in 1980, they asked me to become director of Hippocrates. And I knew nothing about directing, other than they sounded like a good title. So I said, yes. <laughs> Ambition again. Mm-hmm. And, and then I had to learn. Uh, and it's been a learning process, an ongoing one, for all of those years. And it's been a rewarding life. I met my wife in Sweden when I was lecturing there. And she's been my, uh, with me and my best friend and co-director, mother of my children. And it's been a gift from God to do this work. You know, sit here at Hippocrates every day and watch people who are uh, told that they're going to die come back to life. And an ever-engrossed group of people, young, healthy people who are coming here to prevent aging and prevent disease, and athletes coming here, and uh, Olympic athletes we're working with. So it's, it's been uh, every single kind of person from every single part of the world uh, for every reason you can imagine, come and by changing your lifestyle, and that's attitude as well as food and exercise, uh, the profound healings that we see are thousands, tens of thousands. Mm. 
Oh, yeah. Um, There's so many incredible little nuggets that came up in what you're sharing. And I was just thinking about some of the interviews I've done with some of my mentors and friends like Gabriel Cousins. I've had on twice. I've had David Wolf on a few times. I've had John Demartini, Michael Beckwith, many other people that um, that are really living their mission. Right. And I and I always ask them. What's the underlining thing behind, like, the tactics or strategies of vital health? Like, what is it really? And the same thing comes up. It's like living our mission, right? Like being in alignment with our dharma and actually giving our life to a purpose greater than ourself. And that's what I'm hearing in what you're sharing. I want to maybe put a, a little highlight on that and, and maybe have you elaborate on that for yourself if, if we can. Here, we call it the PP here. We said, until you get the PP, you don't get the health. And the PP is a personal passion. Mm. All of us knew that when we were little boys and little girls. Uh, there was something that turned us on and gave us energy. It was almost a, from a stream of, from God that just gave us love and, and greatness. And then our parents who, unfortunately for the wrong they hadn't achieved their goals and they thought fulfillment wasn't part of the picture. Uh, they discouraged you from doing that thing. And many of us were lucky enough to come back to that PP. But the vast majority of people, and I'll give you some numbers and statistics, uh, they polled here in North America, Canada and the United States, uh, and asked a very pointed question. How many of you that work uh, love your work or hate your work? 80% of people chose hate. So that's pretty frightening. Uh, where you spend most of your time, I know that be, I spend most of my time working. And I don't call it work. So for me, it's a joy to do this. How about if where you are at minimum of 40 hours a week and then going home to sleep so you can prepare to go back to work, and many people 60 and 80 hours a week, that you dislike that. And so it brings about disorder. So at the core of health, your original question you have to find your passion. And I always say you have to get the gas. Uh, and th that's your goals plus action equal success. Mm. If you don't reach your goals and aspire for goals and act on those, it's the ho most horrible thing to have goals and never act on them. So goals plus action create success. Yeah. And that's where you get passion from. Mm. It's, you said something really important that is very interesting where it's almost like if we medicate and sedate ourselves psychologically and emotionally whether that's through food or drugs or toxic relationship if we distract ourselves enough and we don't clarify our chief aim or our goals it's almost easier than having a powerful goal but not acting on it absolutely and that's where you're you hit it right on the head so why I'm dealing with people dying of disease and why people are angry and, and, and prejudiced and racist and everything else is that they loathe their own life. And rather than face themselves, they basically overeat, as I did. My narcotic was overeating. Others are alcohol, which is the worst of all drugs. Mm. We just differentiate it because they make tax dollars on alcohol. I don't know more, uh, more deaths I don't know more families uh, that broke up than, on any drug than alcohol. I mean, I don't see heroin addicts I'm worried about driving down the road with, but alcoholics I am. And so all of these things are tactics uh, to get away from you. And rather than to 
rediscover that little boy, that little girl, that passion, that fulfillment that you had, and to really honor that and respect it and, and to nourish your body and to find kind relationships and to expect the best for yourself rather than more problems. Mm, well, beautiful. What a, what a great way to open this conversation up. Uh, okay, so... This is gonna this is gonna circle back around. This theme is gonna come back around. So, what I would like to do is just um, I would like for you to maybe explain what your preferred dietary lifestyle looks like in regards to what you recommend to those that come into your clinic, whether they're in a good standing of health or they're in desperate need of a lifestyle change. Well, here at the institute, we're the folks that brought uh, the raw food. Uh, movement to North America. So in 1952, our founder was told by Harvard doctors she had 90 days to live. So Ann Wigmore was given up to die. <clears throat> and the good news is that she was a peasant from Europe, Eastern Europe, whose grandmother, her surrogate grandmother, was a village doctor. And back then, medical physicians used herbs and food and love. They didn't have pharmaceutical pads. And she basically learned that and didn't know why she was learning that. But as soon as she was given up uh, to die, she adopted back the lifestyle she lived in, in the village and healed herself. Uh, in 1956, uh, with no formal education, basically said, I can't let other people suffer, that I've got to create an institute where we educate people. Now, nobody, I shouldn't say nobody, nobody that I knew of, and she was way ahead in the pioneering stage, was talking about education and health together. It wasn't synonymous. She realized that why people were sick is a lack knowledge. How people get well is to gain knowledge. And it was so, so basic, so primary. But again, the good news is she didn't have a formal education. Those of us who may would overthink that process. We'd have the whole thing abstract at that point. So she opened the doors of Hippocrates 61 years ago. And the main thrust, we are still an educational institute, is that, yes, we have a medical team. Yes, we do the most cutting-edge technologies on the planet Earth that you can imagine. Yes, we do diagnostic work here. Yes, we do cyber scan and all, probably the most extraordinary compilation on the planet Earth of where you can get all of this. But at the end of the day, why you come to Hippocrates is so you can leave here and not need Hippocrates. Mm. The only way that you don't need us is to know what to do. And so you, can, you have an option here to take 35 to 40 hours of education a week, every week. So if you're here for the whole 21-day program, because it takes 21 days to change the chemistry, 21 days to change habits, 21 days to change the mind, you basically walk home and know how to live. And for the rest of your life, once you graduate our program, our medical team counsels you by mail. So you're sending blood tests back and scans back, even healthy people. And over decades, we're holding your hand and telling you, here's what you need at this point. You're part of my work. What I love the most about my work is doing that. So that's really our model here at Hippocrates. Uh, I also realized that, you know, people like my mother wouldn't have come to a place that looked a little shabby. So I went out of my way. I'm comfortable anywhere, frankly, to make this, uh, you know, a five-star resort. So when people come here, I could bring people who would never come to a place like this, and they're very comfortable here. Right. And we don't make it prohibitive. Mm. And so 
we make sure that I grew up in a, in a working class family, that uh, it's not costly here. We have rooms that are costly, so the very wealthy people that are comfortable in those villas can help us here and stay in those villas. But you can share rooms here and pay less than I do at hotels in major cities and have our doctors and have 100% organic raw food. And the diet is not based upon only all raw food. One of the okay. one of the, the unfortunate problems we have is that I'm never, ever uh, comfortable not turning stones. And so about 38 years ago, uh, Hippocrates would have fed you massive amounts of fruit when you were here. And uh, I was happy because... 60% of my diet, if not more, was fruit. Mm -hmm. And I was, I was living it up. I was a sugar addict like everyone listening out there. Yeah. Then uh, when they made me director, when they made me director, it, I went one day from, uh, you know, one of the team members here at Bacardi's to the guy that ran the team. And the responsibility radically shifted. And I got a call from our icon. Now, here's a woman that a lot of you don't know about, but we've got to spend a moment to honor her. Uh, in 1980, I wanted to know why people came here. Was it Ann Wigmore? Believe it or not, no. Was it Victoria Skolvinskis, the co-founder of the Bacchus? No. It certainly wasn't me. Nobody knew who I was. And there was a woman who had come to Hippocrates with stage four breast cancer and completely reversed it and wrote a book, How I Conquered Cancer Naturally. And in fact, that book sold a million, one million copies without any, any sale uh, money going into it. She became a friend of mine. She lived in Southern California. And she called me shortly after I assumed the position and said, Brian, my tumors are coming back, but not my cancer. Now, the first year it didn't alarm me. This happened three consecutive years. And I'm thinking my icon, the icon of Hippocrates basically is maybe having cancer return. And she's absolutely living on this program. And the good news is her husband was an inventor. And he was working closely with the man who was running the Linus Pauling Institute there. Uh, former Phi Beta Kappa student of uh, you know, Pauling, who created the Pauling Institute, uh, called Arthur Robinson. And Robinson finally called me the third year. My breath was being held every year and said, we discovered it was the sugar and fruit. Now, there was little evidence on that. There was none that we could find, frankly, to support that. But this was a Linus Pauling Institute. This wasn't, you know, a small operation like Stanford. <laughs> this was a really, really the most advanced Nobel laureate, et cetera. So now uh, we stood up and we said, oh, let's get rid of fruit. We did a little study here. We were in Boston in those days. We moved here 30 years ago. We're in Boston about 30 years. And... Uh, took some of our guests aside, put half the group on fruit, the other half not, and took fruit out of the diet for cancer. Within a year, took it out for viruses, mold, yeast, fungus, bacteria. And now there's overwhelming evidence. So the community that didn't have the evidence, I wrote a book a couple of years ago called Sweet Disease. And I speak a lot about fruit. And a colleague of mine wrote the most important book ever written on cancer uh, called Cancer is a Metabolic Disease. Okay. And Thomas Seifrey, who's at Boston College, formerly at Yale, and uh, he came here to do a conference. I have ongoing conferences and sat and showed me his work of decades of why fructose feeds disease more than any other sugar. Wow. All sugars, wow. but fruit does more. It ages you. I, I wrote a book uh, 
Well, I wrote a series of books for the medical community called Food is Medicine, and all it is is research. And one of the chapters is on how fruit sugar ages you more than any other known substance. So this was my problem because I said, well, fruit grows on trees. It's natural. The mistake I made. Uh, the fruit we eat today, over 80% of the fruit we eat today didn't exist 100 years ago. It's been hybrid. Uh, the average fruit today has 30 times, not 30%, 30 times more sugar. Uh, it happened to be my favorite apple was 50 times sweeter. I asked the agricultural scientist who knew this back then, uh, what were the original apples like? They said, do you like crab apples? I said, no, too sour. They said, crab apple's a hybrid. It's sweeter than the original apple. So if you start to see the difference, plus that we've had a breakdown on our pancreas because 100 years ago and before that, other than the aristocracy, nobody ate processed sugar. Ironically, it's flipped today because sugar industry is subsidized by governments. It's like the drug industry. And literally, the poorer you are, the more sugar you eat. And the wealthier you are, we have more education and knowledge, so we eat less sugar. But listen to the numbers. In North America and Europe, uh, the average person eats uh, 120 pounds of sugar a year. That's if you're educated with money. 160 pounds of sugar, the poorer you are. Our average child below 18 literally consumes double their weight in sugar a year. So a 100-pound child consumes 200 pounds of sugar a year. And the first dope I ever took that taught me to be an addict on food was sugar. And who gave it to me were my loving parents, the dope pushers. You're good, you take the dope. You're bad, we take the dope away. So I always wanted to be good. <laughs> yeah. So fruit is a sugar, and it's a very high sugar. And little bits of fruit, once you're healthy, we did the work up at Tufts University when we were still in Boston. It's perfectly fine. But another caveat is it has to be right. Mm-hmm. And to get you either have to have a tree or forget it. You're not buying it. Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, there, and I, I want to um, invite any potential distinctions to be made when it comes to the subject of fruit. One thing I want to I want to point out from my own experience and being on the raw food journey for for almost eight, ten years, whatever it's been. When I'm in certain places in the world, there's a big difference. Like when I'm in Hawaii, I can eat a lot more uh, fruit, and I actually feel totally fine. And because there's more minerals, there's more soil diversity, and there's less sugar. The coconut water is like wild coconut, so it's not actually sweet like, you know, the packaged coconut water from the Thai coconuts, et cetera, et cetera. So I just want to present maybe that distinction and any other distinctions that you might be able to provide for people that um, – they 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 want to eat fruit, but they they and they don't know. They just hear like, okay, fruit's good, it's bad, and there's a lot of malarkey, right? There's a lot of different camps. So, are there any distinctions that you can provide on that subject? Well, I think what you just said is powerfully important, and I would have neglected thinking of that. So, where it's grown and how ripe it is is the whole story, right there. Mm-hmm. Providing you don't have cancer cells in your body or viruses or bacteria, why not eat fruit in those situations? Right. Uh, you no know, healthy children, on the other hand, who are born healthy, can eat up to 40% of their diet as ripe organic fruit. Uh, why? Because our bodies were meant to be frugivores. Mm. I do a three-hour presentation where I actually do a photographs of everything from a carnivore to a frugivore. Look at that. Look at it and look at our teeth. We are frugivores and herbivores, and we're the meat 
or carnivores always say we have two fangs. These are not fangs. Carnivores have fangs, large. What this is is for ripping green leaves. Now, I believe that we were originally frugivorous. The fruit was significantly different than it is today. Everything was rich soil. Most of you listening do not realize in Europe, North America, and Asia, uh, over 90% of our topsoil has been eroded in the last 75 to 80 years. Now, that's frightening. And, you know, it's frightening. So herbs were always, greens were always the healer. Today, to live on the planet Earth, we all need to be healing 24 hours a day, seven days a week. The fruit cannot sustain health and strength. All life comes from the sun. Mm-hmm. It's captured by a green leafy plant. Eat green leafy plants. Now, a little bit of fruit, we did the work for you on that. Uh, so in my diet and people who are healthy, we should eat no more than 15% of our diet by weight, by weight, not imagination, as fruit. <laughs> I used to eat, you know, drink like a gallon of fruit juice in one sitting because it was such high sugar. Uh, now if I drink fruit juice, I'll take ripe fruit, juice it, put 10%, and add 90% water. And believe it or not, if you're a sugar addict, it's hard to believe because I wouldn't have believed it at one point. Uh, you'll like it better than the straight Every once in a while, to be polite, somebody makes me a fresh organic carrot juice or worse, beet juice or apple juice, and to be polite, I'll drink it. But the reality is it's almost like somebody punched me in the face. I'm not joking. I would sit and drink you know, Tropicana orange juice. I would take the whole half gallon twice a week, three times, and drink it. Uh, and also, during the autumn in the Northeast, uh, cider is available. I would actually say I'm going to have this for the week. By the time I got out of the car... I was throwing away or recycling the container it was in. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, there, there's some fascinating insights there. Um, and do you think that, you know, do you think that, that I don't know, that inability to process or that blood, whatever is happening when you say that you're getting punched in the face, is that because of your your evolution away from the, the metabolic addiction to sugar? Like yes. now that it just affects you like that? Yeah. But, you know, I think when you talk about Alcoholics Anonymous, the one thing they got right is you're always an alcoholic. Uh So so there's two kinds of sugar addicts, active sugar addicts and inactive. I have to be an inactive sugar addict, not not an addict. You know, if I hit my head one night, I'd be out there, you know, eating 30 mangoes like I used to eat or 30 pound watermelons or something absurd. Because, you know, it's like people say to me, how about if I take a piece? I say, well, all I know is when I kiss, I want to go to bed. <laughs> it's immediate, you know. And most of us have that personality. Yeah. Most of us do not have the conscious restraint to prevent ourselves from going back to that habitual pattern. It's like, you know, the, the old uh, records that get caught on one, one piece. And that's what we get like. So avoiding it is best. I know what a lot of us had to do, I did finally, and it broke my pattern, um, is I was away from it for about two years, and then I could manage to eat small amounts and not need it. If, if, another way we can look at this, if you've ever given up salt, many of you out there listening have, and then two or five years later you took salt and it almost burned your mouth, where you used to actually not be able to eat without a pound of salt on things. Same thing happens with this. The biochemistry regulates. It really knows better than you what it needs. Mm. Mm. Brilliant point. I want to I want to pivot in a direction I know you 
talk a lot about, and I'm really, I'm really, uh, I've been looking forward to this particular question um, because there, there's some nuance in it. So um, just follow my train of thought, and if you need any more clarification, I'm happy to do that. Um, my question is, what in your estimation is the real danger of animal products? And what I mean with this question is beyond just the the variabilities of one's metabolism and people's differing ability to methylate or detoxify physical toxins, I'm actually digging for a deeper underlining causal mechanism for the energetic and potentially karmically damaging effects of our modern day agricultural system and how that model of basic living standards has actually infringed upon our emotional, mental and physical health as a whole. Oh, yeah. I mean, you're asking the question that people should always ask, and the answer should be clear. Let's segment that into three areas. Yes. One, uh, we'll get over the environmental aspect quickly. Uh, To create one steer, which is where red meat comes from, it it requires 50 acres of land. Uh, That's absurd. We can actually... With bioidentic uh, farming, feed 16,000, 17,000 people uh, healthfully for a year with all the protein they need from that same land. Um, karmically, we're killing our mother, and the mother is, is the earth that we live on. We're actually putting needles into her veins to the soil and extracting her blood. Uh, the largest aquifer water in the world's history was found in the western part of North America. It's drying up. It's going away. And it's going to happen very soon in the next generation. We already know from the brilliant work of my colleague, Dr. Openlander. If you've never heard of him, get him on here, talk to him. He's an extraordinary man. He'll tell you about what states are going to dry up first and how soon it's going to happen. Um, So there's a lot that we have to look for. Not only Uh, hurting the planet Earth. We're we're killing our mother that we live on, and mother cannot sustain. We can't keep putting needles into her and draining her and raping her by ripping things off and pooping on her. Uh, The biggest biggest pollutant on soil itself, let's forget greenhouse gases, which we're going to get to next, happens to be the urine and the feces that are draining into our lakes and rivers and streams and You know, during the year of the accident that happened in Alaska with the Valdez, where a drunk captain actually dumped thousands of gallons of oil, the same year it was never reported in the national or international press, there was a bigger hazard that happened from swine farms in North Carolina, where it permanently destroyed the ecosystem of North Carolina, because they have holding bins for the fecal matter that opened up. And it poured into the aquifer of North Carolina. Never heard about that probably till I tell you. So there's a lot that we have to consider. And it's not just our own ass. When it gets to our own ass, uh, I think life is a gift. I don't think it is. I know it's a gift. Every day I get up and I thank God, the universe, for being alive. I thank that universe for giving me the strength and the wisdom to do what I do and to not compromise what I do. And what I'm actually doing is taking a gift and throwing it back into the hands of the giver and spitting in the face of the giver. And Mm. 
The giver didn't say, slaughter animals to eat and drink milk out of the bosoms of another species. One of the many books I've written is called uh, Dairy Deception. And I go out and I do a, a three-hour presentation on that. And what I did is intentionally got beautiful photographs of a man dressed well underneath a cow sucking from its breast and a woman dressed well, attractive people. And always in the auditorium where there's often hundreds of people, there's a gasp. It's almost as if I'm showing pornography because people don't relate as I didn't relate at one point that that's what we're doing. We're getting under a beautiful cow. We permanently impregnate, by the way, which is immoral. And we get under her and we drink from it because it's in a, a package that we literally buy at a store. There's no connection to that. This is immoral and consciously uh, void of any spiritual increment. Uh, my book, Emo Spirit, addresses this. I speak about this deeply. Uh, there's no disconnect between the emotions and the spirit. And the fact of the matter is, it's immoral to destroy your body. Uh, there are biological reasons. There's three acids that come in all animal food that erode the nervous system, that literally perforate tissue, that weaken the cell, uh, that literally mutate cells. Uh, we also have in animal-based foods a saturated fat that clog the arteries and the gallbladder and the organ systems, reducing oxygen. Once you reduce oxygen, as Warburg said, and, and Thomas Seyfried has recently uh, redone the work a century later, that you reduce oxygen by one-third by clogging your body with animals, which I did, and the milk of animals, uh, you start to, to create cancer cells. Not maybe. This is a scientific fact at this point. So you're creating that. When you also look at every disease, viruses, bacteria, molds, fungus, yeast, they're anaerobic, meaning that they don't live in oxygen. They live in the reduction of oxygen. When you put animal fats into your body, you're literally reducing oxygen. So there is a cosmic reason that Mother Earth is now shaking, that the universe is talking to us and giving us an opportunity to become sane. When I was in England, three years ago, on the front page of their largest periodical, it said, the British people must become vegan or it's not a sustainable country. So the message is out. Uh, this year, the number one dietary trend globally is a plant-based vegan diet. And what I see with Generation X is they aspire to be vegan. My generation didn't know what a vegan was, as I didn't know. They aspire. They may not be. Uh, in the country of Germany, over half the population consciously choose at least four meals a week that they consume no animal-based foods. I predict that they have the potential to become the first vegan great country in the world. Mm. Uh, that many people who I cannot speak about come here to Hippocrates quietly. Many of the very, very noted people that many of you hear about and hear from are living this way. Many athletes actors. The major trend in Hollywood is this diet. And by the way, when they're building the bodies of people to make them sexy for actors and actresses, they put them on the plant-based diet. Why? Because that works. Uh, I'm not a, a fight enthusiast, but I'm an enthusiast of the great American Muhammad Ali, who spoke up in the 1960s against the absurd war that we had in Vietnam. Uh, literally, he was on our diet for two of his fights. So the image oh. of uh, the young man that went and lifted 800 pounds over his head, 
in Rio last year at the Olympics was on a vegan plant-based diet. Uh, the longest winning heavyweight bodybuilder 25 years ago, a Swede, was on a vegan diet for five consecutive years. So the image of weakness to me now is men who are eating high female hormones meat that feminize them, taking steroids to have muscles and not man enough to eat food that humans are supposed to eat. That's my image of what a vegan is. Strong, committed, sane, conscious, and futuristic. Okay. <laughs> I, I, what, what I felt was this powerful call to humanity to actually step up, and, and, and especially this idea of masculinity, femininity, as it's been distorted. The dis as it's been totally distorted by corporations and in confusion. Um, one thing came up that I think is a really interesting point that I'd like to at least point out and, and get your take on. I mentioned this with Dr. Cousins because it was such an important thing to me when we're talking about veganism. One of the things that I had to deal with early on was this nature of dogma. And this yeah. conversation of fanaticism, and, and you've seen it. I mean, you've probably seen it more than almost anyone in the raw food world, in the vegan world of like almost this like militant like. I mean, and it's present everywhere. It's 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 anyway. So I want to I want to point something out and get your take on it because a lot of people are scared off from the title of veganism or whatever. Because there's so much, so much fanaticism involved, and my my feeling of you is you're not really fanatical. You're highly passionate, and you're a scientist, which is why I like hearing what you say because you're scientifically looking at like, hey, well, look, the science shows us that this is actually the sane approach, and that's why I'm going with it. Opposed to a lot of people that are are more guided by their own intrinsic dogma, and that can be. A little bit of a dangerous thing. So I, anyways, I just want to kind of point that out for anyone that might be listening to that or influenced by that, that kind of fear and just get your take on, on that whole conversation about it. I, I think the first step of leaving the status quo, leaving the way that all of us were brought up is there's almost a necessity to become a zealot. Mm. I know that, uh, yeah. Because we so struggle doing this ourselves that we want to rally the troops. So part of what you're seeing, the symptomology of the so-called fanaticism is you want everyone in your world to do this, not because you're a nice guy or a nice gal, because you're weak as shit and you want everyone to make your life easy. Mm -hmm. So that we cannot diminish the importance of the animal rights activists, but yes. quite often, quite often, the average person out there, they don't understand why you throw paint on people or yell and scream. I understand their sentiment. It angers me that we're killing animals. But at the same point, uh, there's several ways you can deal with it. Yeah. One of the ways uh, that the most important way is to say no in the cash register. No, we won't do it. No. And I think one of the approaches I have, sure, I address animal rights. But the truth of the matter is what's in it for me usually motivates people. So this for you is less cancer, less heart disease, less diabetes, more health, more longevity. May you look healthier. You may look younger. That seems to be 
Well, not seems to be, because I came from the zealot camp when I started this, you know, 46 years ago. Mm-hmm. <laughs> totally. It's worked better for me, let's put it that way. But, you know, I think we need our, our co- cohorts and all of this. Uh, also, the problem is, and this is where I, I, I'm a hippie. I mean, I was brought up in the 60s. Mm-hmm. I had hair down my ass and sideburns out three inches on each side. But the reality is, I cut my hair and I put suits on because I realized, as many people did in the past, that if our real obligation is not to only be comfortable, but to do the work we want to do, to reach every man, woman, and child, my aspiration is to reach everyone on this planet Earth and to tell them that they have options to change their spirit, to change their emotions, to change their physical health. I want to make myself more acceptable to as many people as I possibly can. Mm. And so that's my approach. I don't want to condemn anyone. I think that all of us have a place, and sometimes you need a Malcolm X before you get a Martin King. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> and I love both of those men, believe me. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you for that distinction. That's one of the things that I came up across um, in my journey, and I befriended David Wolf like seven years ago. We became good buddies, and this would be the constant conversation I'd be coming to him with, like, this YouTube personality is going crazy and making videos about everybody and you've been made videos about and 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 it's just like it kind of jarred me because I was thinking in my head isn't this supposed to be about peace love and like harmony and what I'm seeing is this like distorted shadow of dogma that's actually causing me to question it like am I I one of the things I asked him I was like if I do the raw food thing long enough am I going to become like that <laughs> and, and his his answer was no that's not really how it works it's actually a people problem it's not a it's not really the food it's actually just what's going on the neurosis of people yeah. well the, the number one thing we give here that's important is psychotherapy for everyone you know that right everyone here gets every one of our guests gets psychotherapy if you say uh, to me what's the most important thing it's not changing the diet it's changing the mind so of course you'll eat this way Although we focus it on diet, it's really not that important. Mm. This is what we're now discussing. Mm. Of course you'll eat this way. Who wouldn't be rational enough to eat food that you don't process, don't cook, that's raw and plant-based and organic? That's, let's put that aside. Now let's get to what matters, your life. What are you here to contribute? How are you here to fulfill your life? And you know the mundane things that we make the altar of God. You know, like exercise. Yes, you have to exercise. You're going to be sick. I don't care how much raw food you eat. One of the problems I have with the raw food community, they look like hell. <laughs> Most of them have no muscles. They have no, they're skinny little things. They look like they're anorexic or something. You know, they even get names uh, for it. You know, get out and exercise. Put some weight on you. you look like a normal human being. Have some strength. And, and then, of course, eat this way. But now, once you do that, let's do what we're here for. What's your what's your passion, as we point out? What are you here to contribute? That's what we're here for. At the end of the day, people don't say when they're dying, oh, I ate a raw food diet and I exercised. What they hope is they leave a legacy of love and peace and contribution behind. And that's really what it's about. Wow. That, I'm so glad you, you, you punctuated that. And that, that is the perfect segue into my final topic that I want to dive into with you. I want to discuss how fear 
creates disease and the unconscious fear patterns that almost everybody in society carries but does not realize. Oh, yeah. I mean, I do a, another presentation on that called Fear is Disease. I saw that. I did it the other day, actually. Mm. I did a group of vets, and it was incredible. You know, I, I've done that all over the world, and I, I don't think I've ever had a more uh, open response than the poor guys who have been in war and the gals that have been in war. They really got it. And so let me explain that to you, that we now realize that about a half a billion years ago, creatures had the first brain, and that's called a reptilian brain, and you have that too. So every one of us have the core of our brain is reptilian. They now call it a triune. Uh, 150 million years ago, a second layer of the brain came. And the second layer of the brain was a limbic brain. And that's where empathy and emotions came in. And when you have a baby, you're tender to the baby and you protect the baby, etc. About two to three million years ago, the important part of the brain came that distinguishes us from being conscious or unconscious people called the neocortex. Now, let's go back to the reptilian where about 85% of the people reside most of the time. So if you see today's political atmosphere, if you see terrorism, if you see war and hatred and racism and violence of any type, it's a reptilian. So most people are spending most of their time in the reptilian. Picture yourself being in the back of the cave with a flashlight and you hear noises and every time you shake because you're frightened. That's where people spend most of their time. You need the reptilian because the reptilian is about fight and flight and survival. So the only good part of that one is you want to make love. You know, that's the one part of your the reptilian brain that, of course, that's, I say, that's my favorite part in some ways. It always drives you to mm. perpetuate humanity. Mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. uh, the empathy and compassion part, the limbic brain is important, but the real place we need to be is into the neocortex. The neocortex is your connection between consciousness and yourself. And consciousness is not something that comes from your brain it comes from the omnipresent consciousness that exists in the multiple universes. So within one half of an inch of your nose, we can be conscious. It's a, it's a flow of knowledge and information. All of us use it at times. It would have been called ESP, extrasensory perception, where you don't know something, but it flashes in your mind. That's what we're talking about. Uh, but the truth of the matter is, if we're hiding in the back of the cave, as most of us do most of the time, and all we're thinking about is, how do we stay back here? And it's so scary back here. Let me smoke some more reefer. Let me drink another drink. Let me eat another cake. And I mean, I used to eat the whole cake. Or let me eat a gallon of ice cream. Or whatever the hell we do to, to, to stunt our neocortex and limbic, our empathy and compassion part of it. We do it. Because it's fearful. It's like pulling your head above the water. And now you see the light of day and you say, my God, this is what life is. And so rather than deal with life and have that passion we spoke about, people go under the water again and now blame others. He did it to me. She did it to me. The government did it to me. My mother did it to me. Your, your teacher did it to you. Nobody does anything to you. You do everything to yourself. You're in total control of your life. And like it or not. We have people like Mandela to prove that to us. Now, anyone on planet Earth basically should say, I hate white people. I hate, you know, Mandela was the perfect example. They actually throw this man in jail. They try to kill him seven times in jail and fail. And he comes out, forgives everyone, becomes president of his country and preaches love.
That's the neocortex. Mm. And I won't name names, but some of the leaders in the world certainly today are the perfect example of reptiles. That they hate, they distract, they separate, and the old adage of power and control is separate and divide and you conquer. And that's what's happening today. They make it in the political arena worldwide that there's a right and a left. There's no such thing. There's corporate interest that controls everything. Four major corporations that created fear in your mind intentionally are the military, which most conservative of all presidents in the last century, Eisenhower, the last speech he gave said, you don't have to worry about the communists. You don't have to worry about the fascists. You have to worry about the military complex. That's the most conservative president said that to us, a real conservative president. <laughs> Number two, you have the pharmaceutical industry and the food industry. That's two and three. And the food industry makes us sick. They literally lace your food with opiates, synthetic opiates. Listen closely, people. Don't say that was interesting. Let me find out more about this. Let me challenge Brian Clement. I happened to learn that from the former head of the FDA, Dr. David Kessler, where he said the major multinational companies have chemists on their payroll, all of them, that basically make synthetic opiates to lace the food so you become addicted to that food. They also lace it with sugar. In my book, Sweet Disease, I write a chapter, and in there I include a study out of Princeton University. Where they looked at people who were heroin addicts. They looked at people who were cocaine addicts. They looked at the rest of us that are sugar addicts. Which was more addictive to the brain? Sugar. And that means fruit sugar. And that means dextrose and sucrose. All sugar acts exactly the same in the brain. Uh, the last one of the meat and the dairy industry. I mean, if, it's no wonder that people are beating their spouses and abusing their children and uh, having violence upon their neighbors and people they don't know. Uh, because if you're willing to kill an animal to eat, uh, it's not a, a big stretch to go to the next step. If violence is what's in your vein, and we know for sure that the adrenaline that pumps out in the last minutes of the animal's life gets into the body and you actually pick that up. We've watched it here over the years with our medical. Now, people actually change personality when they're taking blood at a hospital. So people who come here who are weak, sometimes we send them in and they're getting blood, and we actually see dynamic personality changes. So why wouldn't there be a personality change when you take a fearful animal's blood in? Why is it in countries that consume the largest amount of meats, there's more rape and more murder, more violence in those countries? Well, this is all. So let's go through those four fear industries that literally keep you under their thumb. The meat and dairy industry the pharmaceutical industry, the food industry, and the war industry. So what I'm, what I'm hearing, and you've very clearly outlined it, is that the, the perpetuation of fear, the program, let's call it the program and the scarcity software of fear in society, that to me is like, it's like a viral infection in the motherboard of humanity and it's in the the program is mediocrity right like how can we i think it was um uh michael bernard beckwith who's incredible wordsmith he he said one time he was giving a sermon he said that we have we have elevated the lowest common denominator as the standard in which we live our life and the the lowest common denominator is mediocrity and we have yeah. elevated that to be the standard of society. 
You're a superstar if you're mediocre. <laughs> right. right. Look, at, look at reality TV as one perfect example of that. Mm. You're watching goofy people who are lost in their life as entertainment, and, and they become the heroes of people. Mm. Rather than, you know, if you talk to the average child today about some of the great leaders, they don't know about them, but they'll know about some of these TV personalities. Uh, it's just beyond human comprehension, but I'm an optimist. I think things are going to change. Uh, you know, we're, we're at a, a, a shift time now that hasn't happened in God knows how many millennia. Mm -hmm. And we're going to not only survive, but we're going to thrive. Modern science, by the way, is going to take us there. Uh, last year, uh, after 108 years, Einstein predicted 108 years ago, we'd find the microcurrent, the invisible microcurrent that governs all life within the body that connects us to all life. It was discovered. It's now being already placed in technology. We're using some of those technologies here at Hippocrates. Uh, we also had last year where Northwestern University found a way that to create futuristic diagnostics. They looked at the electromagnetic charge, lightning, that occurs when a sperm and an egg comes together. And they have actually captured that. And from that, they can measure how strong your immunity is, how long you're predicted to live, and how your metabolism works. And this is going to be a diagnostic tool. I just recently found out that an iPhone can have two probes on the back and give you an EKG. So that if you have a person on the street that falls down from a heart attack, we can do an EKG with an iPhone today. This is not futuristic. So you have a problem in the world now where modern science, real science, has moved well beyond biology, flesh and bones and blood to electromagnetic biofrequency. My new book will be out in the autumn uh, called Quantum Human Biology that addresses mm -hmm. And sadly, they're trying to squelch that because the money's in flesh, bones, blood. And the truth of the matter is, inevitably, the future is going to win. The future always wins. It's just we're in this the end of Rome period now where can you imagine I can take most of you listening down to your local pharmacy and get a kit for under $50 that will determine if you have colon cancer. Do you know what it cost me to do that in a hospital? Fifteen, twenty thousand dollars Wow. $35 kit in your neighborhood you can find today. Mm. And this is where we're heading. We're heading to a liberated world. We're heading to a world where... Generation X is saying, uh, we want to be plant-based eaters. We get, and I also, from my young co-workers here, learned that they recapture re the word vegan. And vegan for them means animal rights. My generation often used from the health perspective, plant-based. So we call everything here plant-based vegan. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We don't exclude anyone. Uh, we're, for, we're for the right thing all of the time with no exception. Uh, yeah, oh, that, that, that's such a great point to punctuate because that, that keeps coming up in my world, especially recently is that when is the right time to do the right thing? And it dawns on me. It's like, it's always the right time to do the right thing. It may not be convenient. It may not be comfortable. It may not, it may stretch my boundaries, but it's always the right time to do the right thing. Well, this morning I was talking to an African-American audience on, on TV, and I said, you're on the slave diet. Now, it's not comfortable for me to say that, but it's a fact. Oh. Why they're sicker than white people are as sick as dogs. And the poor African-American people who are underprivileged are even sicker than we are because they're on the same low level. As Beckwood wisely said, the bar has been lowered. 
on the diet that they were brought up on. And this is why they're dying. So, you know, we need to liberate ourselves. We need to cut the chains, all of us, by stopping saying yes to the evil empire and starting to say no. And the evil empire, uh, there may be a conspiracy to weed you out. I think it's just utter greed, to be honest with you, that these people don't get it, that it's greed. And if you're, if you're sitting here saying you're a conscious person listening to us, and you're not saying no, rethink it. If you're saying that you're an environmentalist and you're still eating animals, you're not. Yes. If you're saying you have compassion and don't love yourself, you do not have compassion. Mm. All of these things are like basic, you know, it's like kindergarten, elementary understanding that we have here. So before you talk about what's broken, fix yourself. Mm. And then, then you don't see things as broken. You see things as challenges to improve. Yeah. And it, it dawned on me and my work and my message and my profession, which is in the same field as yours and many other of our contemporaries, it dawned on me that my message will continue to fall on deaf ears until I become the symbol of my message. And when I really got that, I started to go back to, I started to point the finger back at myself. It's like, yeah. you're the one, you have to embody this and be congruent. Yeah, because when you go to bed at night, you know who's bullshit at that day. <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah. It's never. Mm -hmm. but don't say somebody else created your reality. No, it doesn't happen. I mean, this is where, you know, people have bad relationships. They're blaming the other person for their unhappiness. When you have two people who are really happy in, the, in their own lives, you create wonderful marriages, wonderful partnerships, wonderful children. You know, the world becomes wonderful at that point. When you create two broken uh, two broken people come together, you create more brokenness. And so it's really about working on ourselves. I mean, Gandhi said it so well. And uh, recently I, I introduced and, and hosted uh, Arun Gandhi, the grandson of Gandhi, a wonderful man too, his own right. And uh, he said to me, you know, my grandfather's biggest concern was why people spent all of their time looking at somebody else and blaming them and not working on themselves. You know, he said, look what he did. He was a a able to eradicate the English Empire without violence by self-focus. Yeah. That's what it was all about. Uh, Christ, if you happen to be a Christian or love theology, I love theology all over the world. Uh, Christ said, it, you're made in my image. Not you should look up at me and pray for me and ask for help. You're made in my image. Everything I can do, you can do. Mm. And every, every single great theology and great leader in the world has told us that. Uh, when I had the privilege to uh, listen to Martin King and become intimate friends with Coretta King, you know, uh, their message was quite simple. Their message was, there's nothing that you should tolerate that isn't just, you know, and you don't have to be fighting back and hitting to make the point. You have to be self-perspective. You have to have self-perspective. And you have to look at what you can do to strengthen yourself to become that image you just spoke about. If you're not willing to be who you are, you shouldn't talk. If you're not willing to be an example of what you, you suggest others uh, do, shame on you. Uh, the world has a lot of bullshitters today, a lot of salesmen today, very few truth-tellers. That's the problem. Mm. Beautiful. Beautiful note to... to uh to encapsulate this whole conversation. I want to thank you so much for your time, your wisdom, and joining me and joining all of us. Um, 
as a final note, where can everybody that's either interested in investigating and inquiring about the Hippocrates Institute and your work, where can they, they easily find more? Well, probably most people will get on our website, so I'll, I'll say it twice because it's a little tricky. Uh, the father of medicine's name was not Joe Smith. It was Hippocrates. <laughs> so it's Hippocrates Institute or Hippocrates Inst. So it's H-I-P-P-O-C-R-A-T-E-S-I-N-S-T.org. So Hippocrates Inst, meaning institute, H-I-P-P-O-C-R-A-T-E-S-I-N-S-T.org. We're a nonprofit organization. Number two, you can call the institute from all over the world at 561-471-8876. 561-471-8876. And you can get our free quarterly magazine uh, and hopefully you get it online so we save some trees along the way. That's free. You can get a hold of us and get that. Uh, you can look at all of the offerings we have here in South Florida, as well as all over the world. I'll be in Las Vegas speaking this weekend. I'll be in Seattle, Washington on Monday speaking. On Tuesday in Portland, Oregon, I'm going to be on uh, Kathy Ireland's CNBC show next week. And so it's a constant Process. So I just got back from three and a half weeks, five countries in Europe. And so our mission is to spread the word of truth and healing and, and joy worldwide. And it's a relentless mission for me that I'm blessed by God to be able to do and to spend time with people like you. Mm, thank you. Thank you, Dr. Clement. This is a pleasure and an inspiration for me. I really appreciate it. God bless. Have a good evening.